As you're taking your seats, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 4. We're excited about this Christmas Eve service coming up. I know I, my family is, and, and last week I took a stack of those invite cards home. I hope you did too. And uh, as a family, one of our objectives was to, to go around our neighborhood and to, to give out those cards to the people in our neighborhood and, and to take the kids along and just encourage them and, and to and to see just why, why this season is so important to us and how people need to hear about Jesus. And so our kids were just so excited to be going around and placing these cards um, uh, into the neighbor's hands, or so they thought. I, I told my daughter that we were going to go and knock on the doors, and she instantly looked at me and said, wait, what? I thought we were just going to leave them at the doors. I said, no. I said, honey, we, we want to we talk to people, right? We, we don't just want to kind of give them a card and run away, you know, ring their doorbell and, and take off. We want to talk to them and tell them about, about Jesus Christ. We want to be there in case they have questions. And, and, and this is great, isn't it? And she kind of was coming around to the idea. And then she looked at me and she just with kind of this, this kind of frightened look in her eyes. She said, but dad, what if they don't want to hear anything about Jesus? Well, truth of the matter is, is that there are many people in this world, and increasingly more so in our culture, we are living in a time where people simply do not want to hear about Jesus Christ. He conflicts with their life, he confronts their life, and so there is a mounting opposition, and this has always been the case, there has been, always been opposition to Jesus Christ. Opposition is in an, an inevitable element of genuine Christian faith. In fact, Jesus, in John chapter 15, 18 through 20, said this to his disciples as he was preparing them to go out into the world to share the good news that we celebrate at Christmas, that Jesus has come to save sinners. He says this to them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You see, you will run into incredible opposition because Jesus Christ conflicts with the world. He confronts the world. Jesus then warned his disciples in chapter 16, he said this, they will put you, speaking to the disciples in specific, they will put you out of the synagogues and indeed the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And you say, well, this is, that's not true of my life. I don't see persecution in my life. Well, just notice the connection in that verse. Those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you are striving to be godly in Christ Jesus, the world will listen. The world will be drawn to you. They will see that you're different and in some ways that will actually be appealing to them. That there will be something beautiful in your life that is, it is undeniable, and yet when they hear the reason for the beauty within you, oftentimes what you will face is not a love of you, but a hatred of you. And the more godly you become in the Christian life, listen, the more you show forth Christ's likeness in your life, the more inevitable, the more inevitable persecution and opposition will become in your life. It's a great test to see how godly we're truly living in this dark world, isn't it? 
So really, as we consider the nature of opposition, we look at the church in Acts, and it's amazing. It's off to this remarkable start. It's growing rapidly. People are coming to faith, and you know, they're loving each other, and all seems good until the persecution hits. Peter has just healed a man, and it's provided a platform for him to stand up and declare the good news of Jesus Christ. And what we find out in just the first few chapters, chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 4, is right now as the gospel is going forth, all of a sudden the opposition is coming in full force towards the church of Jesus Christ, and it will become a common theme throughout the book of Acts. Persecution, opposition is not only inevitable, listen, it is actually, if we see it correctly, helpful for the church. But the question is this, as we look at the text together, is how does the church respond to opposition? That is everything. How does the church respond to opposition? And for that, we turn to the text, and let's read it together, just the first 12 verses, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Notice what it says. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Incredible picture of boldness and courage. Being given by God the power to stand in the face of opposition, in the face of outright defiance and hatred. How does the church respond to opposition? Let's look at the model set before us here and let us learn from them and let us be filled with the same power to stand in this fierce storm of opposition. First thing, note this. You want to stand in the face of opposition, This do, do this. Don't flee, stand strong. Don't flee, Stand strong. Don't run away when persecution hits. Don't flee. Don't, don't avoid it at all costs. Instead, stand firm. Stand strong and face the opposition head on. Verse 1 tells us that this opposition hit literally as they were speaking to the people. Did you see that there? I mean, they're in the middle of explaining the good news of Jesus Christ, and people, as we've seen in the text already, are actually coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is pretty remarkable what they've done. They've healed a man who is crippled from birth. 
Both Peter and John are preaching the name of Jesus Christ, and this launched opposition from the authorities. Notice here who is picked out. The, the opposition, opposition comes from three groups primarily, and people who are in positions of authority and power, people who have much to lose. The first group that's mentioned here, we'll just do a little bit of gathering some information, get a sense of what's happening, are the priests. That's what the text tells us, the priests. The second group is the captain of the temple, and the third group are the Sadducees. The priests are the ones who are conducting the evening sacrifices at the time, and priests were broken up into kind of divisions, and they would rotate through their responsibilities in the temple. They would be waiting for this privileged opportunity and responsibility to to do this sacrifice and to be uh, serving the people and serving God like this. And so all of a sudden, this kind of commotion is happening and they are thrown off by it and they're questioning what's taking place. The next group there, the captain of the temple guard, this is the guy who's in charge of all of the temple affairs. He's the one who is sec- the second most powerful person in Jerusalem, apart from the Roman governing authorities and their army. The first person in power in Jerusalem was the high priest. Second only to the high priest was this captain of the guard, and he would head what was considered to be the temple police. This would be the same temple police who came and arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There would, it would consist of around 200 priests and Levites. And this is the man who's responsible for maintaining a sense of order in and around the temple. And finally, you see the third group here, the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were one of the four sects that made up the first century Judaism. Along with the Pharisees and the Essenes and the Zealots, And they were a small minority, numerically speaking, but they were highly, highly influential. If I could define them or describe them to you, it would look something like this. They were the dominant religious and political force in Israel. The high priests throughout that period of time in the nation of Israel were all coming from the, the group of the Sadducees. The religion they promoted was largely one of social custom, They were the materialistic rationalists of their day. They were theological liberals, if that helps you in any way. They denied the supernatural. They denied the existence of angels and demons. And above all things, they denied the resurrection, that there would be a final resurrection from the dead. Obviously, this is a problem because this is exactly what the apostles boldly proclaim. To the Sadducees, the the Messiah was more of an ideal instead of a person, and the Messianic age was more of a a process than a, a true period of time. The Sadducees were highly educated. They were wealthy landowners. They were the elite 1% in the culture. But note this, they were also unprincipled collaborationists who would sell their mothers to stay in power. They, they had collaborated with the Roman authorities who had given them, therefore, a, a position of power amongst the people, and they loved the power. They were control freaks, and they did not want anybody rocking the boats. And so here, these three groups of people come up to the apostles, in the middle of them proclaim the good news of Jesus, and they come upon them, notice what the text says, greatly annoyed. 
They're angered and frustrated, and we see in the text why. There are a couple of reasons given. Notice what the text says. They're greatly annoyed because, first, they were teaching, and secondly, notice, it's the content of their teaching, proclaiming in Jesus' name the resurrection from the dead. They were annoyed first because these men were simply teaching. They had taken on uh, the role of teaching amongst the people of God. And naturally, this was disturbing to the priests. It was disturbing to the Sadducees, to the rulers, to the elders, to the teachers of the law because they were supposed to be the teachers. So anybody who comes and wants to kind of you know, upset the apple cart and rock the boat a little bit and come along and teach is really saying, um, wait a second here, that's our job. Who gives you the right to come and teach God's people? You guys aren't proven. It's not your role. And we know what they thought about the apostles, and they believed in many ways they were unqualified to be doing what they're doing. Just look down in your Bibles at verse 13 for a second. Verse 13 tells us that when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. The idea there of uneducated means uneducated in the rabbinic law. You know, they didn't go to the proper schools. The idea of common there is that they're, they're amateurs. They're not professionals. In other words, they're not like us. And so they're, they're mad. They're furious at these men who have the nerve to simply stand up and teach. And this was one thing that bothered them about Jesus. You remember that? They were just so terrified of Jesus, but they were so angered at Jesus because he had the audacity to stand up and teach, and particularly to teach as one who had authority. And people marveled at the teachings of Jesus, and they flocked to him. And in John 7, it tells us this, that no one, this is what the people were saying, no one has ever spoken like this man. And this was problematic to the, the religious elite of the day because they, they prized the concept of authority in teaching, but the authority was not an inherent authority. It was a derived authority from external sources. And so they, they, they would walk around and, and they would quote kind of the, you know, the big name teachers of the day. And in a sense, what they're doing is they're flaunting their academic credentials. And it was, you know, they, they were just constantly referring to people as the authority, showing how much they knew we got something kind of like this, right? And, and, and by the way, this is what they anger, They were so angry with Jesus. They're like, where did you go to school? Like, really? Who taught you? Who give, you know, what authority are you appealing to? You know, if I give you a modern-day analogy, you know, we love this. We like to kind of promote our credentials in some ways. And sometimes it's just, you know, sometimes it's harmless, and we're proud of our education. And so we walk around with our, you know, our university hoodies, right? You know, Harvard University since 1636. Pretty impressive, right? So looking at Jesus, I'm like, well, what are your credentials? And remember Jesus, he kind of turns to them, if I can give you the, the kind of Cole's notes on it, and he says, I went to Trinity University since forever. <laughs> like, I was instructed by God. When I speak, God speaks. It's pretty impressive, right? And the apostles here are speaking with the same kind of authority. And then that's right because they have been given this authority by Jesus Christ himself. So they stand, remember, they've been validated. This miracle serves to validate that they are actually messengers come from God, that they speak the truth from God himself. And this is just eating these, these elite, religious elite up. They are just disturbed by this. They're frustrated and they're annoyed and it's so prideful and so selfish. 
But notice, secondly, they're not just annoyed that they were teaching. They're annoyed because of what they taught. They're teaching about Jesus Christ. And the central point of their teaching was that God had raised them from the dead, a position that they adamantly disagreed with. The man, remember, you have to consider this. These are the same group of individuals who have just condemned Jesus Christ as a blasphemer. This group, they put Christ on the cross. And so think about what this means. If the apostles are telling the truth, they are being shown to be in the wrong. Everybody loves it being pointed out publicly, especially when you're wrong, right? If the apostles are speaking the truth, then these men have made a tremendous mistake. And if it's true that Jesus is really who he claimed to be, the son of God, think about the implications of that. If he really is alive, if he's been raised from the dead, maybe he'll come after us. And so in verse three, notice what they do. Look at their response. And they arrested, or some some translations say they seized them, and they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. This gives you a bit of a sense of the chronology of the time that's passing. You remember that they went up to the temple um, at the time of prayer. It's probably three o'clock in the afternoon when they went up, and now it's the evening, which I personally love because it tells us that the sermon we have from Peter is not the full thing, right? This is probably a three-hour sermon. You guys have it good. They've been preaching, and they've been you know, probably in, in some great discussions with people, and time has gone by, and evening has come, and in, in the Jewish culture, you didn't hold a trial in the evening unless it was an absolute, utter emergency or unless you wanted to have some kind of a mock trial like you did with Jesus Christ. And so they, they grab these men, and they throw them into prison. The first thing the Jerusalem authorities did, you have to see this, is they try to intimidate the disciples. That this is all about intimidation. This is all about squashing this. This is all about wanting them to stop speaking this message, make them flee like they did in the Garden of Gethsemane. In, in, in the Greek, there's an emphasis that does not come out across as strongly in the English that indicates that they, you see the words that they came upon them? In verse one, they came upon them. The implication there is a suddenness to it. So, you know, these, these leaders, they're not kind of sitting in the background and slowly meandering and making their way up to the apostles. All of a sudden, it's like all of a sudden, they're preaching, and all of a sudden, these guys storm up to the front. And what they're doing is they're flexing their political muscle, their religious muscle, and they're trying to stare them down and show them who the real power is and let them know who's truly in charge. And so they arrest them, and you know you can see the thoughts behind this. Yeah, we'll tell you who can teach and who can't. And if we determine you can teach, then you can teach. But if we determine you can't, hey, we, have the, we reserve the right to throw you in prison anytime we want. You know, the leaders did not have to arrest the disciples at this point. They could have picked them up the next morning. Peter and John were not hiding. I love that. And they're not hiding. They're out, they're out in the open with this stuff. They're not kind of timid with their faith. They're boldly proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. And the leaders must have said, let's just throw them in jail overnight. You know, let them cool off a little bit. That will dampen their spirits. That will discourage them a little bit. And then we'll see how they function in the morning. We'll let that sit on them. Surely that'll straighten them out. 
And yet what we see is Peter and John stand strong in spite of this intimidation. They will not be intimidated by the authorities. They will not be intimidated by anyone or anything. And you know, I think it's so fascinating because the world continues to operate just like this, don't they? I can't tell you, like, the, the headlines in, in, in the newspapers all the time when it comes to religious liberties and, and the rights of Christians and, and how this world is going, it's disturbing how fast the church is being attacked and how blatantly. But, but you have to see this. The world, and, and a lot of times the government as an institution, wants to use some intimidation. And sadly, that's one of the reasons why the witness of Christian people often fails, or at least in many ways is completely ineffective. You see, if Christianity is true, it is the greatest message in the world, amen? Yet, listen, yet if we flee our responsibility to proclaim it, if we capitulate to the intimidation and the opposition, then what? then the church is rendered ineffective, then people remain lost in their sins, then nobody hears the good news of Jesus Christ or they hear maybe some kind of altered version of it that's watered down and really is inadequate to save anybody. We need to be prepared for opposition to come. We need to expect the opposition to come. In fact, I would argue that the opposition isn't coming. The opposition is here. And it's just going to come in increasing ways in our lifetime and in our experience. And we're really going to experience, listen, we're really going to experience that we're being faithful to the message of Jesus Christ. And look at verse 4. This is so sweet. Luke wants to make it abundantly clear that opposition does not nullify the gospel and cannot prevent or hinder the word of God from accomplishing all that God has it to accomplish. But many of those, this is such irony in the face of this opposition, but many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. I mean, the church just continues to advance in the face of opposition. Persecution leads not to the, the crushing of the church, listen, but to the extension and the establishing of the church of Jesus Christ. Persecution leads to not the destroying of the church, but to the growing and building up of the church. Look, trial is God's way of growing and maturing believers. We believe that, right? It's one of the primary ways God uses in the life of a Christian to shape and mold them to grow and mature them. James chapter one is explicit with this. It should come as no surprise to us then that God would use opposition and persecution to strengthen, to grow, and to mature the church of Jesus Christ. The rulers were trying to stamp it out, but what we discover in Acts, which is also what we find later in church history and throughout church history, by the way, we see this in our day too. The more the church is oppressed, the more the gospel spreads. Satan wants to destroy the church through persecution and opposition, and he's not smart enough to figure out that that's actually one of the means God is using to spread and to see the church flourish in this time. Justin Martyr, one of the church fathers, said this in the early centuries of the life of the church. He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And here's why this is important, because if you know and believe that with all of your heart, it becomes a sort of safeguard for you in your life to stand strong in the face of opposition. It helps to remind you that God actually has a purpose and a plan in this, and if I stand strong in this, it will actually lead to the benefit not only of myself, but the benefit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
say, well, how, how does that work? I mean, how exactly does persecution work to advance the cause of Jesus Christ? Let me just begin by saying this. If we choose to flee from opposition, we miss the growth and strengthening that God designs in it for us. If you flee hardship and opposition for the cause of Christ, you'll stay weak and frail and immature in your faith, and the church will suffer as a result. Here's why, listen. Because persecution strips the dead weight off of the church. It's God's designed means of purging the church of Jesus Christ. Think about it. He sifts out the, 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 the wheat and the tares. He separates them. He shows who's in and who's out. Because, listen, this is just simple logic, right? Who's going to stick around for something they don't really believe in when things get really difficult? Nobody. And so what happens through persecution is this. The church may shrink in size at first, but what happens is this. God is just kind of, he's sifting off uh, the, the, the non-committed, the true unbelievers who are coming to the church, but they're not really a part of the church. Those who aren't really engaged in the mission, those who don't care about the cause of Christ, they're gone when things get hard. But what remains is this kernel of faithful, committed, I'm in this no matter what group of Christians who say, bring on the persecution, let's go. And this faithful group is always used by God to spread the gospel in power. And you think about the Christians that we know, we've seen murdered for their faith, even in recent months and years. We, we hear the stories, but what we see is this powerful image, isn't it? That there are people out there who believe so strongly in the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what you do to them, they will stick their necks out, literally, and say, take my head. And believe me, this is not stamping out the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not destroying the kingdom of God. This is God's divine mean of advancing his kingdom. And so I want to just challenge you this morning. Look, we're in a really, really sweet season coming up to Christmas when the world is walking away further and further away from any kind of theistic belief, we are called to be a light in the darkness. To so do this first, listen, commit yourself to confront the world. Commit yourself to confront the world. Just, just say that in your mind right now. I exist by God right now in this time to confront the world. If you're a follower of Christ, that statement is absolutely true. Commit yourself to confront the world. That's the starting place. And then do this. Make your life expendable rather than hiding to protect yourself. Listen, if we as a church shrink back and we flee our responsibility, we will be ineffective for the cause of Christ. But if we stand strong, if we rally together, if we say that we love Jesus, and listen, we say and we act like our lives are expendable. And just wait and see what God will do. We spend so much time trying to protect our lives, don't we? We spend so much time on how we can make our lives so much better, so much more comfortable, how we can be in this world and, and really assimilate into this world so that we're, we look no different from the world. Listen, if you love Jesus Christ and you're committed to the truth of Jesus Christ, that puts you at odds instantly with the world that so often we love so much. I love this, they don't flee, they stand. And they stand firm, strong in the Lord. This is what we are called to. Secondly, how does the church respond 
to opposition. Notice this, don't falter, stand steadfast. We've all heard the, the saying that it's, it's not how you start, it's how you finish, right? There are so many people who have started the race strong. They've been standing strong. They've been standing firm. But as time goes on, and, and listen, pressure mounts and increases. There are so many who started well who have not finished well. At any moment, listen, any one of us, no matter how strong we think we are, at any moment, any one of us could falter in our frailty. The call is to stand steadfast, a sense of consistency in our witness to Jesus Christ, in our courage and boldness for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look at what it says in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes, they gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. Here's the picture. They, they take these two disciples, they take Peter and John, and they bring them into this council. This council is known as the Sanhedrin, which was the high ruling council of Israel. You can think of it kind of like the Supreme Court. It had 70 members, and the high priest was the president, so that made 71 in all. These were the elite of the elite. It also included the scribes and the experts of the law and the elders who were recognized in the community of having some power and a position of authority. In addition, people from the priestly family were also included in this council. Annas was formerly the high priest, but he had been deposed by the Romans. In his place, the Romans had put forth Caiaphas, as Annas's, that's Annas' son-in-law. But the Jews believed that a high priest, and this is what the Old Testament taught, was a priest, high priest for life. And so even though the Romans wanted to kind of uh, uh, take away Annas and say, you're no longer the high priest, and put in a puppet high priest for them, all of the people of Israel still saw Annas as the supreme high priest, as the true power, and he was the one working behind the structure in Israel. But Caiaphas was just as corrupt and power-hungry as his father-in-law. And then two names are mentioned there. You'll see that, John and Alexander. And there's really no way of knowing who they truly are. Some people believe that these are um, two individuals who are two sons of Annas, possibly. But we don't know, and ultimately it doesn't matter. We just see this family connection. And, and all of this is this huge, political, power-hungry mob. And by the way, this is the same mob that tried and condemned Jesus Christ. And they take out, just think about how intimidating it is. They take Peter and John out, and, and the way that the room was situated was they had these 70 elders all right here, and then the, the high priest was there, so all the elders faced the high priest, and so they marched Peter and John out and placed them right in the middle. And so they're facing, like, here's, here's picture me as Peter, or, you know, standing in front of these 70 individuals, and behind me here is the high priest looking at me with certainly much condemnation. This is amazing. See, well, that's pretty scary. Uh, yeah, but no. Think about how incredible this is. Think about what God is doing. God has given them an opportunity of a lifetime to preach to the religious elite, an opportunity that they would never have been able to, manif or to uh, manufacture or orchestrate themselves in any other context. Never would they have the privileged opportunity of standing like this before so many influential people 
Because they didn't flee, notice this, they were given a great opportunity. I believe with all my heart that if we stand fast in the face of opposition, even though we don't know where it's going to lead, we can be sure of this. When we're honoring God, when we're being faithful and we're suffering for it, God is about to do something great. He's going to give us an incredible opportunity to speak for him. Again, this is God's design in persecution. It often presents such an unbelievable opportunity for those who are faithful. But as always, the issue is, how will we respond? Peter talks about this in 1 Peter, the idea of, you know, he talks about, let me paraphrase, if you get in trouble for being obedient, then, hey, you're, you're okay. You're, you're suffering for doing what's right, for what's just. Praise God. That's a good thing. But, now, he, he argues back and he says, look, if you suffer for you're being sinful, well, then that's your problem, right? Like, don't, don't blame that on God. But if you know you're being obedient, you're faithful to proclaim the truth with boldness and courage, listen, you can be sure that you're in trouble for this obedience, and that is not a bad thing because God has you exactly where he wants you. So don't fight back. You know, you're sharing the gospel and, and people are responding with opposition. Don't fight back. Don't get personal with it. Don't get angered by it. Listen, rejoice and praise God that you've been counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, that you're being more like your Savior because he suffered too unjustly, didn't he? And instead, listen, praise God and pray that you respond rightly. This is it for all of us. Listen, the the time is coming where each one of us is going to be under some opposition and we're going to be forced to make a choice. Will I boldly stand up and declare my commitment to Jesus Christ or will I capitulate, will I falter, and will I maybe deny any involvement with Jesus Christ? This is immense pressure they're under and they could cave, but check out this opening question. Again, you see the sovereignty of God in this. <laughs> this is so great. Verse seven, and then when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, they asked them this question, by what power or by what name did you do this? This is, it can't get any better than this, right? It's like God has literally just put a, a ball on a tee and said, okay, Peter, just hit it as hard as you can. Just go to town. He set him up so perfectly. How, how often are we praying, God, would you just give me an opportunity? Would you make it easy for me to declare the gospel? Or, or we're looking at our lives and we're having conversations and we're saying, how can I get ticket to Christ here? How can I inject Christ into this conversation so that this person can know the truth about Jesus? And yet, it couldn't have been any easier for Peter and John. And yet, Yet, even though God had given, haven't you been here? Haven't you been here where God's just like, he's like teed it up for you and he's like, okay, take a swing. And you're like, uh, I don't really feel like it today. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe tomorrow. I'm tired. I- I'm a little bit busy. You know, when we are in high pressure situations and there's much at stake, we can easily falter And I think this happens for a number of reasons, right? We begin to think about what it might cost us. We begin to think about how I might be perceived. And and really, you know, the greatest persecution that we face in our culture right now is that people won't like us very much. We might lose our reputation. We might lose our job for Jesus Christ. Who cares? Who cares about your job? Who cares? Like, do you not believe God is going to provide for you if you stand up for him? 
We just we hold on so tightly to the things of this earth when God is a God, listen, of eternal blessings that he will shower upon us. And yes, life can get very hard, but listen, it will be worth it. The cost will always be worth it. There is not a sacrifice you can make for Jesus Christ that will not be worth it in the end. Peter just, he doesn't even care about, he doesn't care what's going to happen to him. He doesn't falter. What a model of steadfastness in the truth of Jesus Christ. By what power and authority do you do this? What is the name? That's the idea of authority there. Such an important principle here in dealing with opposition in verse 8. I love this, Peter just jumps on it, and Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, just stop there, and just note this, listen, they have the power of intimidation, if you're in Christ, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. Just let that sit in there for a minute. The key to any progress in the Christian life is to be filled with the Spirit of God. So what, is, what does this mean? Well, I could spend a, a whole sermon series talking about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, but let me just give you the basic understanding of what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. First of all, every believer has the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. When you're saved, you receive the Spirit of God to dwell within you. But the Bible says that being filled with the Spirit of God is to be controlled by the Spirit of God. And the, the greatest passage that gives the, the most understanding of this is in Ephesians 5.18, where Paul contrasts being filled with the Spirit. And by the way, it's a command, be being filled with the Spirit. This is to be your constant pursuit, being filled with the Spirit of God. It's contrasted with being drunk on wine. Now just think about that parallel for a minute, or that contrast, rather. When you're drunk, you're being controlled by another substance. It is influencing your thoughts, your behaviors, your actions, right? It in many ways is dictating your life, what you do, what you choose to do. When you are then, the parallel, the contrast excuse me, is this. When you're filled with the Spirit of God, you have surrendered to the Spirit's influence in your life, and His power has full reign in your life. Your thoughts, your behaviors, your actions are all being driven by His influence in your life. This happens to a believer when we walk in obedience to the word of God and the spirit of God. It's being yielded to God, to his calling on our lives, submitting to his truth. And the more we submit, the more we're yielding, you know, the more the, you know, we don't get more of the spirit, but the more we give the spirit of us, the greater influence he has in our lives. And that's exactly, isn't it, what, what Peter has done? I mean, he's just being faithful. He's walking in obedience. He's proclaiming the gospel. He's, he's doing what God is telling him. He's healing people. He's just walking in obedience, and now as he stands, and by the way, one of the greatest acts of obedience here is this, not faltering in the face of opposition, not backing down, not wavering, being willing to stand up for Jesus Christ. That in itself, by the way, Christian, listen, that in itself is a victory. I will not capitulate. I will not back down. I love Christ more than I love even my own life. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 21, 14 and 15, said, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. 
he's just given over. Listen, he's, he's not walking with his own wisdom, his own resources. He's not walking in his own strength. He has committed himself fully to the power of the Spirit of God. He's saying, God, I trust in your resources, not mine. It's not my winsomeness. It's not my cleverness that's going to get me out of this situation. And by the way, God, if you want me to stay in this situation, I'm glad to be here for you, and I will rejoice in that as well. And it's so interesting, when this phrase filled with the Spirit, whenever you see this in the book of Acts, just note this, it always leads to a strong verbal testimony to Jesus Christ. Every single time, it's followed by a powerful, bold, courageous proclamation of Jesus Christ. Say, how do I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? One of the primary ways you know you're filled with the Spirit of God is that you speak about Jesus Christ. It's challenging, right? You're doing a little bit of examination now. You're filled with the Spirit of God. You cannot help but speak of Jesus Christ because the Spirit of God always points to who? Jesus. This is so much of what the church is missing. The heat is being turned up and God is giving the church an opportunity to stand steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. And yet the church in especially North America is so self-reliant. They think they're, think they're so clever. They're self-sufficient. And it's, it's kind of like this. The church in North America in so many ways, and so many Christians are like this. They're so self-sufficient. It's like you're standing on one foot. And so you know when the storm of opposition hits, you're just bowled over. When you're walking in the spirit, when you're anchored in the truth, when you're walking in faithfulness and obedience and your heart is submitted completely, relying upon the Lord, it's like you've got your feet planted firmly and you're leaning into the opposition. You're not able to be pushed around and moved. And this is what God desires for the church of Jesus Christ. And so here, Peter, you see, what, what does Peter do? He doesn't waver. He stands. And he stands steadfast. Finally, just note this. What do we do in the face of opposition? Don't fear. Stand separate. Don't fear. Be willing to stand separate, to be set apart. Peter, this is so great. He uses this opportunity for a bolder testimony. He's filled with the Spirit, and he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you see, he could just stop right there. You'll notice in your Bible, like in mine, there's a comma. But but really, when you think of it, He could have just stopped the discussion right there. He's answered their question, right? But Peter models what it looks like to have such courage in the face of such opposition. And by the way, in verse 9, you know, if, why are you questioning us? He's, he's establishing their injustice here. You have to see that. He's saying, really? You're, you've called us in here because we did a good thing in healing a man who was born crippled? That's why we Really? Shame on them. But then he just takes it. If you really want to know, I'll tell you. I'll tell you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's who. End of discussion, all right? You got, you got all you need? Peter doesn't stop there. He's not, here's why. He's not merely trying to defend himself. He did what Paul did later in Rome 
He says in, in uh, 2 Timothy 4.17, listen to this, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. If he had let fear drive him, he would have tried to save his own skin, you see? He would have said as little as possible. He would have said, you know, I plead the fifth. He would have refused to incriminate himself, but he wasn't afraid. He was a servant of the living God, and he had the greatest message in the world. He could not keep silence. So he thought to himself, in all my life, I have never had a chance like this. I may never have a chance like this again. And he used this opportunity to witness to Jesus Christ, and this is such a masterful gospel presentation with such boldness and courage. This is fearless. He is standing in the lion's den, and he's throwing them a huge chunk of meat. Look at what he goes on to say. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter goes right at them, doesn't he? He lets them know that they are guilty. He does not get them off the hook. I love this. Just take note of this. He does not soften the message. He doesn't delete things that are going to be offensive to them. Instead, he actually majors on those things. He quotes the scriptures. He quotes Psalm 118 verse 22 and he holds it out in front of their face and shows them how they fit into that psalm so perfectly. Psalm 18.22 talks about the builders who reject the cornerstone and he looks and he, he replaces the builders and he inserts that personalized pronoun, you. You are the builders that this psalm was talking about. You rejected the cornerstone. The cornerstone was everything for a builder. It was the piece that made sure everything else was built properly. It was the most critical piece. Without it, you could not have a structure that would stand properly, that would look the way it was supposed to look. Here, the builders, these Jews who were supposed to be the ones being used by God to extend the message of hope and salvation had rejected the very center of that message. And what they threw away, God used and began to build a new temple, the church of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.20. And he holds out to them here the invitation of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He makes it so clear, what you have done is devastating and yet there is hope. Listen to this, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. How the world hates statements like this. Look, if you want to be laughed at, if you want to be scorned, if you want to be hated and even persecuted, just testify to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. Say that Jesus is the only Savior and there is no other. And that only by believing in him can someone escape damnation. The world will fight you to the death because nothing is so offensive to the natural man as teaching that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot choose our own way of salvation, and that if we are going to be saved, it must be by the way God has appointed. How could Peter declare this so fearlessly? 
because he believed it with all his heart. He believed it with all his heart. And the world will say, and the world does say, well, that's, that's exclusive, and that's intolerant, and that's discrimination, and how dare you? You're so narrow-minded. And look, in, in a sense, they're right, but it's also true. And any man or woman who turns their back on the truth is a fool. And Peter's very last word here in verse 12, that word saved, that's the same word he uses, the same root word he uses in verse 9 to talk about how that man had been healed. And you have to see the connection he's making to these religious elite, these people who have rejected the cornerstone. He says to them, in effect, it's not only the lame man who needed to be healed, it's you. And the only name that can save is Jesus Christ. The only name that is going to be effective for your salvation is the one name that you have rejected, but there is hope. If you have rejected him, listen, even you who condemned Jesus Christ, you too can be saved if you turn and place your faith in the one name. Church, listen, if you are in step with the Spirit, you will be out of step with the world. You will march to the beat of a different drum. You will look different, you will sound different, you will live different. And what God calls us to, and the question that he asks us is this, are you willing to confront the world regardless of what it may cost you? Are we willing to stand separate in a culture that is increasingly hostile to the truth claims of the gospel? Are we willing for the cause of Christ to say, I don't care what it will cost me. I will stand for Jesus and I will stand for him alone for there is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. An elementary school in Kentucky that is performing a, a play based off of a, a Charlie Brown Christmas. You love that one, don't you? They have determined to delete the most important lines in that play. You know the part where Charlie Brown asks what the meaning of Christmas is and Linus goes on to quote scripture and explain how Jesus Christ is the meaning of it all. That play will have no answers to the meaning of Christmas because the truth of Jesus born to save sinners confronts the world in a way that makes them feel uncomfortable. Opposition isn't coming, it's here. It's always been here. Are we willing to make the world uncomfortable so that they might know the comfort of a Savior? Maybe even more important, are you and I willing to be uncomfortable in this world so that they might know the comfort of a Savior? Don't flee, stand strong. Don't falter, stand steadfast. And don't fear, stand separate. And let us stand upon and hold out the Christ, the one alone who is the cornerstone. Amen.